For those of you who are new this week, as we're studying what is worship, we have seen a couple of things. One, we've seen that worship, for one, is not the song service. Um, that's not it. And to call it a team that comes up and leads music and stuff a worship team is not biblical. It's a praise team. Um, we have seen that the word for worship literally means to fall down, put your face on the ground, to kiss the feet of one you absolutely adore and pay homage and honor to. That's the literal interpretation of worship. We've talked about what worship isn't. I've given you examples of that. Next week, we're going to talk about what is acceptable worship. And as Jesus points out, that we are supposed to worship God in spirit and in truth. The last two lessons will be on those. But tonight, I thought, as I was preparing this back a long time ago, um, the, the outline of what I wanted to get across to you, if we're going to really worship God in truth and spirit, we've got to know who we're worshiping. We need to know who God is. And that is very important for us to worship. We have to come across a true image in our minds of who God is. What's the attributes? What's the character of God? If we're going to worship him, we need to know who he is. So that's our topic tonight. Who do I worship? So that's what we're looking at in this one. And we're going to see some examples of how people in the Bible reacted when they came in the presence of God when they came into the presence of the Almighty God, when they came into the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy God. So, if we are to worship in spirit and in truth, as John wrote um, in his gospel, as Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John 4, 20-24, we need to know who it is that we're worshiping. And I'll tell you something. This, as I've said before, these lessons might change the way that you worship. This one tonight could very well change the way that you really worship. Now you might be saying, well, wait a minute, I already know about the attributes of God and stuff. I've studied this. And I'll tell you, if you have never, as a Christian, if you're a born-again Christian, and you've never done a Bible study on the character of God, on the attributes of God, it is one of the most important lessons you should do. All Christians need to do this lesson. This is so important. Peter's sitting here nodding. It is so, so important. It is. And we are, <laughs> this is really difficult to do because to understand all of these uh, aspects of God, the, the attributes of God, do you know there's books written on this that are like this thick, you know, like several inches thick? There are books written on each one of the attributes of God. Well, I have 30 minutes with you. Uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to, to get into very great depth here. So some of these, what I'm going to do is just point out the thing, the attribute of God, and I'm just going to show you verses like you can see in your handout, which back it up. And you can take little extra notes if you want on the sides and stuff, but that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to give you the Reader's Digest version here, or the abridged version of um, what the attributes of God are. So, to start off, the first one is God is spirit. Now, Jesus has already alluded to that. We've talked about that already in this passage, that God is spirit. Where do we get that? Well, John 4, 24, Jesus himself is telling us about who God is and who we're supposed to worship. As I've said before, John 4, 20-24 is the most concise passage in the entire Bible on what true worship is. And Jesus says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So God is a spirit. We've actually talked about that in other lessons. So I'm not going to go further on that one. Number two, God is one. This is a confusing aspect. God is one. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. 
where it's part of the Shema. What the Orthodox Jews, even to this day, when they get up in the morning, they recite this. It's the first words to come out of an Orthodox Jew who is walking close with God in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, where it starts off, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Part of the Shema, one of the most important aspects of the Bible. As a matter of fact, Jesus quoted this also when asked what is the greatest commandment. He went back to this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Shema. Jesus recited it. It's the greatest commandment. It also has the second greatest commandment in there. So that's what God is. He is one. Now, this confuses, particularly some cults and other religions, they get really confused on this because in some cases, like in Islam, they think that we actually worship three different gods. We don't. We worship one God. The Lord God is one. It's that simple. Now, the Father and the Son are one. They are one. We see this in John 10, verse 30. Jesus speaking, I, this is Jesus, and the Father are one. I mean, (laughs) voila, boom, there it is. It's that simple. So Jesus and the Father are both one. We also see this as the Father and the Spirit are one. And we see this in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Peter's talking. This is when Ananias and Sapphira had sold some property, and then they took the the money and they gave it to the apostles saying, we sold all this stuff and here's the profits. We're giving you everything that we sold. And they were lying because they had pocketed some of it, and they knew they were lying. And uh, they thought, oh, God's not going to (laughs) tell. Yeah. Peter said in verse 3, And Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? This is a very, very serious accusation because if you're lying to the Holy Spirit, as this points out, you're lying to God. The Spirit is God. And to lie to the Spirit, you're lying to God. And God, now these, these two people were Christians, and God killed them for lying. The early church was just starting out and God was making a point right here. You're not going to lie to me. That is unacceptable. And he kills them. They take them out and they bury the people. So lying, you know, is wrong. But the thing is, the point I'm trying to make here is the Father and the Spirit are one. There's a third part. God is a trinity. He's a triune God. Now, the word trinity, true. It does not appear in the Bible. <laughs> Jehovah's Witness will point that out to you at any time. Uh, it does not appear. It's, it's not a word in the Bible, but... It's, it's a word that shows a three-in-one action. It's what it is. A triune God. Tri meaning three. So God is a triune God. Three-in-one is what this is talking about. And there's many passages that talk about this. I don't like, when Jehovah's Witness and I get into it, they usually will try to bring this up. I don't even go there. Um, you know, they will like, let's argue about, the, you know, let's talk about how God, you say God's a trinity and he's really not and all this. And I'm like, why are we getting into this discussion? You really want to talk about things? You want to talk about the difference between you and me? Let's talk about who Jesus is, because that's where we get down to the truth. The Bible doesn't argue about the Trinity. Why are we arguing about the Trinity? But the Trinity is mentioned in the Bible. God is a triune God. Let me show you some passages in Isaiah 6.3. We all know this passage, probably. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is given a beautiful vision of heaven, and he hears these special angels out there shouting this out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Have you ever wondered why it's repeated three times? It's because God is a triune God. Each aspect, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three are holy. That's what that means. 
That's why it's repeated like that. We see it again in Revelation, because John gets to see the same type of image, and he hears the same thing going on. So when we see holy, 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 this is actually, Isaiah is telling us, that, and the, as the uh, angels are proclaiming, there's three holy gods making up one. That's what that is talking about. So it bates, uh, bears witness to this three, threefold God that we worship. Another passage is Isaiah 48, 16. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now, this is a prophetic verse. It's talking about sent me. The me in this verse is Mashiach, the Messiah, Jesus. So this is talking about the Messiah. But it says, you'll notice, that God sent the Messiah. That's the Father sending the Messiah. And then it says, and his spirit. We see all three aspects of God in the same verse. A triune God here. That's what we see. So this is a prophetic statement, of course, but it shows all three aspects of the Trinity as we see it. Even in the creation account, go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. What's the word for God there? Elohim. Elohim. That's the word for God. Do you know something? Him, placed as a suffix, means it's plural. Many of you have probably studied the names of God. Did you realize that Elohim is a plural term for God? Why would it be plural? Because it's three in one. Isn't that cool? So when people try and tell me, oh, God, you know, that's not, God is not a triune God. There's no trinity mentioned in the Bible. In the first verse of the Bible, we see a plural usage of the name of God. So <laughs> I got some problems with that one, I see. But that, that's a very important thing there that you can make out with that one. Um, and when Jesus was baptized, this is a very, very uh, classic answer to any of the Jehovah's Witness and stuff. When Jesus was baptized, all three personas of the Trinity are there. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, look what it says. And when Jesus was baptized, so Jesus, here we are, we got the Messiah, the Son of God, Mashiach is there, was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now we got two parts. Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Who's speaking there? The father, all three in one. So we get that whole thing right there. And when Jesus is teaching the disciples at the last supper, he declares this to them. He says in John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus is speaking and I, that's Jesus, will ask the father and he will give you another helper. Who's the helper? The spirit. All three aspects of the Trinity right here. We don't worship three different gods. It's God in one. So people often ask me, I don't understand that. Explain it. If I could explain that, I'd be the most intelligent person on the planet. And I'm not. Because no one can explain it. To understand this triune nature where God is three, yet he is one, you, to understand it totally, you have to be on the same mental capacity as God. No human can be there. We will never figure this out. It's something we just generally have to accept. We can't figure out how it works. People draw all sorts of images and stuff like this, and they might symbolize things like with water going into three different states. And ugh. There's no real way to explain the three-in-one aspect of a triune God. You have to be God to understand it. We're not there. So you'll never understand it. Let's go to the third one. God is omnipotent. Okay, the proper definition here of omnipotent means God is all-powerful. He is 
able to do whatever he wills, since his will is limited by his nature, God can do anything he wants. And that is in harmony with his perfections. That's what it is. So he can do anything that is in harmony with being perfect. And by the way, the word almighty, which is what this means, he's the almighty God. Do you know the word almighty actually appears in the Bible 56 times? And in every single instance, it's talking about God. Only God is almighty. No angel is almighty. Lucifer is not almighty. Michael is not almighty. Only God has that title. Look at some of these. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Many of you know this because it's a popular chorus. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Mm. How about Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint nor grow weary. Actually, if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll find out that Jesus is the creator God. Colossians also mentions that, that it was Jesus, not the Father who did the creating. It was Jesus, who is totally God also. So God is all-powerful inside of his perfect nature. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, that's the thing that many times we lose sight of. How many times do we struggle with certain aspects of God and theology, particularly the first couple of chapters in Genesis, where people say, oh, I, I can't believe that you know, the earth was created in seven literal days. I just can't believe that. Why not? Well, a lot of reasons. Uh, look how long it takes to make stuff and everything. And God must have formed the earth over millions of years. Those days can represent millions of years and stuff like that and epic periods and things. Well, in a lesson I did this a couple of years ago, I explained how the word yom, which is the word for day, whenever it's used with a numerical system like this in the period of day, it's always talking a 24-hour day. Every single instance in the Bible, it's like that. So why would the creation account be different? And why do people, and I have this all the time, Christians now, I'm talking Christians here, who love God, who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, say, I just can't believe in the creation account being a seven-literal day. Let me tell you, folks, if you have that problem, let me explain what your problem is. You're putting God inside of a box. You're limiting his power, are you not? You really going to tell me it's so difficult for God to place a galaxy and all these stars billions of light years away and instantly have the light here? You're going to tell me that's too hard for God? You're going to tell me it's too hard for God to form like the Grand Canyon over a period of just a few days? Actually, that's a result from the flood. But you're going to try and tell me, oh, it's too difficult to do that? It's too difficult for God to make all of the, you want to get really scientific, to have this much lead on the planet. Why that? Because remember, lead comes from uranium. And it takes a long time for uranium to break down through these half-lives and stuff to form lead. Earth has to be so old because there's so much lead here. Why are we putting God in a box? Why are we saying, yeah, I can't believe in the seven-day creation because actually I limit God in my thinking. That's, what, that's really what they're doing. Don't put God in a box. You mean it's too difficult for when God says, I made it in seven days. Why is this hard for you to understand? Why are you limiting my power? But people do. Hmm. God is immutable. This was a topic we did a couple of years ago here on a summer staff night. It got me in a lot of hot water with some people because a lot of people disagreed with me on this, even though it's biblical. And it's because of society today really gets into this one. Immutable, what's that mean? Does God change? No, God does not change. That's one of the characters of God. God does not change. It's that simple. 
He does not change. Being, he is perfect. Remember that? God is perfect. He is the standard of perfection. You want to measure what perfection is? You measure it against God. God is the standard of what perfection is. You measure perfection by measuring it against God. Why would God thus have to change? He doesn't because he's already perfect. To change means that you're not perfect. God is perfect. It's that simple. Being he is perfect, there's no reason for him to change. His character or his will never changes. Oh, boy, Michael, you're really opening a can of worms on this one. Well, let me show you the verses first of all, then we'll dive into this a little bit more. But let me just show you a couple of things here. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, I'm going to the New American Standard because actually it's more accurate to the ancient Hebrew on this than the English Standard, one of the few times that happens like this. But it says, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? God doesn't change is what this passage is saying. He's not man. Man is the one who changes all the time. We change our opinion all the time. God doesn't. He will not change. Or does it get any plainer than Malachi chapter 3, verse 6? For I, the Lord, do not change. How clear is that? That people, I mean, what's the problem here that people don't understand? What part of that verse don't you get? I, this is God speaking, I, the Lord, do not change. It's one of the most powerful passages on God being immutable, unchanging. Psalm 102, 27. But you are the same, and your years have no end. In other words, God is saying, as long as I live, I never change. And I live forever. I am eternal God. I do not change. James 1:17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So it's describing the Father. Now get this. With whom? The Father. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then I have Christians telling me, I can't believe that God doesn't change. Really? Folks, you understand what this means? If something was against God's character in the past, was a sin in the past, guess what? It still is, because God is perfection. You don't change perfection. But many Christians today, Christians now, are under the influence that society can make God change his mind on sin. Oh yeah, man can do that. Fallible man can change God. His nature. I don't think so. Yet we are constantly being bombarded with this today. It's become a major issue in the church. And it's sick because God tells us right there, He does not change. You don't change perfection. Today's church is condoning all sorts of sins because society accepts it. And society says it's, that's not really wrong. And the Bible's outdated on this. Folks, how can God be outdated? Is he not the eternal God? Does he not say in Malachi 3.6 that he does not change? It's that simple. If it goes against the character of God in the past, it's, it's wrong. Look at Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. 
He doesn't change. He does not change. Our world is constantly changing, but God is perfection. Don't lose sight of that. And he is the moral standard of what everything true, just, and holy is to be measured against. You want to find out if something's wrong or if something's acceptable? What do you do? You don't measure by what the society tells you because society is so screwed up. What you do, you go back to the standard. What's the measuring device? God himself. It's a hard pill for some people to swallow, but the thing is, it's in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, and it's in there numerous times. Why don't we get it? So if something goes against God's character, it's a sin. It has been a sin. It is always going to be a sin. God does not condone it. God does not make mistakes. God is perfect. Fifth, God is omnipresent. As we saw, Jesus already mentioned, we fit that verse in John, God is spirit. He's everywhere. He's all over. There's no place you can go anywhere where God is not there. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23. Again, I'm going to the New American Standard because it's more accurate in here. It says, am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? Basically asking, am I not God here and God there both? Because I am everywhere. I am spirit. I am all over the place. In other words, God is not some little idol that is confined to a temple or to a shrine, as some denominations sort of place him. Some of the foes in the Old Testament used to say that um, this, the Syrians thought during the time of Elisha that uh, God was the God of the hills and the valleys, but not God of the plains. Boy, were they wrong. And God showed them they were wrong, that he is God of everything. He is everywhere. Don't limit God. God has no limits. They discovered this the hard way. Continuing, look at this one in Acts 17.24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in temples made by man. He does live in a temple. The temple, of course, we've already covered this. We are the temple of God. Are we made by human hands? No. God indwells in us, as it says a couple of times in the New Testament. Or look at this one. I love this passage. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Look what David writes. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there you are. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell to the uppermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In other words, David is writing, God is everywhere. You can't get away from him. You don't believe me? Read Jonah. He tried to run away from God. <laughs> that was one big fish story. Okay. <laughs> Number six. Omniscient. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Who's going to teach God something? Oh, man. God knows everything. I have no idea what the bottom of that verse is there, so just hold on. Psalm 147, verse 5 says this. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God knows everything. 1 Samuel 2, 3. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. You can't teach God something. Do you realize, I mean, do you really 
understand that even before you were born, God knew you and knew everything about you and everything you would ever do before you were even born. When God created the world, he knew this. He is a God of all knowledge. You understand why we're doing this? We need to get an understanding of who God is if we're going to worship him. And many times our worship is hindered because we don't have a clear understanding of who God is. That's why I think this lesson is so important tonight. Look, look at Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? In other words, not one is going to fall without the father knowing it? It even tells us that the hairs on our heads are counted. Of course, in my case, it's pretty easy. In Peter's case, <laughs> takes God to know that. Because <laughs> Peter's, for those of you who are listening, Peter is a, is a helper here, and he has hair coming out of every aspect of his face and head. If you know what a dandelion looks like, those little fuzzy things. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, who teaches God? No one teaches God, because God already knows everything. Now, I'm going to give you something. If you're sitting here wondering, you know, okay, Michael, a lot of this I get. I've heard this in Sunday school, or I've studied this. That's great, if you really understand and comprehend what's going on. But this part, that God is all-knowing, is so important to us. And let me teach you something really important here. Because I get asked this by just, not just teens, but I get asked this a couple of times every year, even by adults. If God knows everything, why should I pray? You ever wonder that? I bet many of you have. If, if you're honest, I bet a lot of you have sat here and have wondered that. I remember doing, wondering about that many, many years ago also. Why do I need to talk to him in prayer? Why do I need to tell God anything? If God already knows everything, everything about me, he knows every need, every wish, everything about me, um, and he's only looking out for my well-being, why should I pray? I think it's a very good question. I don't get upset when people ask me a question like that. I think... That's a valid question, and I think everyone in this room deserves the answer. You want to know what the answer is? It's so simple. It really is. Why do we do this? Common question. Ready? We do not pray to inform God of what's going on because he already totally understands our situation even better than we do. Get this now. Listen carefully. Prayer is entirely for our benefit, not God's. It's for our benefit. We benefit. How do we benefit? Michael, we benefit? Yes, we do. How do we benefit by talking to God? Even though he already knows everything, how do we still benefit? Because to talk to God, it's a form of communication. Now, most of you in here are not married, which is a good thing at your age. I am. Um, next month, I'm going to be married 33 years. And my better half is on her way home right now. And so I'm praying that she gets home because it's a lot of storms down to the south. And she called me at 7 o'clock and told me she's on her way. So that's good. The cookie lady is on her way back. Um, <laughs> and it's not that I'm out of cookies at home. <laughs> but, um, no, the cat needs somebody to hold it. That's why we, no. <laughs> cat hates me and I hate the cat. But the thing is, what I'm trying to get across, in 33 years, one of the key things, because people often ask me, what's the key to, to a successful marriage? I'll tell you. And this is not original information. You can talk to any marriage counselor. Communication is the most important thing. 
What is the major breakdown of most marriages? Lack of communication. Not money, not jobs, it's the lack of communication is the number one problem. Now, prayer, we have to understand this and see it this way. Prayer is a form of communication. It's you talking to God. We also need to listen to God. How do we do that? He wrote us 66 love letters. Read them. I'm amazed, even in my own life, I'm amazed that I will seldom ever miss a physical meal to feed my physical body. But how often do I feed my spiritual body? I wonder, even as busy as we get here, during the summer working and stuff like this, or in our careers, or at school, or whatever, do we get so busy that we don't feed our souls? I mean, we'll go to great lengths to feed our physical body. Some of us do that numerous times throughout the day. But how often do you feed your spiritual body? Do you realize that your soul gets hungry also? It is so important. I cannot tell you how important this is, that you spend time in God, with God in prayer because, for one, it develops an intimacy. And that intimacy is so important. That's what he desires. As I've said before, you were created and you are given salvation to worship God, number one. Second, to be in a personal, intimate relationship with God. We are just not saved to get a fire escape from hell. We don't get an insurance policy like that. That's not the purpose. The purpose is, number one, to worship God because he deserves it. The second thing is to be in this personal, close relationship with God, which we can do because of Jesus. But do you feed your soul? Do you have such an intimate relationship with God because you talk to him and listen to him? I sure hope so. Put it this way. If you were married to God... How successful would your marriage be? Are you that intimate? If you're struggling in your spiritual life, maybe the first thing to do is to see how hungry spiritually you are. Are you feeding your soul? So that's why we benefit. And the last one, the seventh attribute we're going to get into tonight is the one we've already mentioned in a way. God is, and I'm using it the three times for the triune God, holy Holy, holy. It's a great hymn, and it's also a great praise song, and it's also a great attribute of God. And I'll tell you, this one right here, this is the one. If I could mention, if I could teach you anything here tonight about the attribute of God, this is the one that sums it up the best. If anyone ever asks, what's the best attribute to describe who God is, it's this one, that God is is holy. And to be honest, it's the one that I think that we don't think about the most. And as I say here, if we gain a proper understanding of this attribute of God, it's going to change your way of worship. It will. If you come to a real under, an understanding and a true understanding of what this means, that God is holy, your worship is going to change. It will. God, you see, doesn't just coincide with holiness. He's the standard of holiness. Look at some of these. Revelation 4, 8. John, the apostle, gets to see the 24 elders and up in heaven, and they're shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
That's what is going on in heaven. That's what is being said. Of all the attributes, you notice they're not saying that God is, you know, all knowledgeable, that God is ever-present. Look how they're starting this off. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy. Why? Because I am holy. And I love David when he writes this one, Psalm 96. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord has made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Are we supposed to fear God? Yes, we are. Why? Because God is holy and we aren't. Notice this. It says in verse 4 that we're to praise God. Sing praises. Spend time praising God. But go down to verse 9. It says to do what? We are also not just praising God. We are to worship the Lord in what? In the splendor of holiness. And the result is we tremble. This gets this whole idea of God and, and us running out in some prairie to go hug out in the field when we meet him. That is not what's being described here, folks. And I think this is the number one problem that we're seeing today is we have lost this aspect of God's attributes, that we have missed this so much. And it's the, it's the contemporary Christian church that is screwing us up so bad. My generation has totally blown this. And that's why I feel this is so important for you guys to learn what this means, what real true worship is, and how holy God is because God is to be treated in absolute holiness and as a result because of our, even though we're Christians, because we are still sinning, even though we're forgiven, we will come into the presence of God. And when we see what God is like, it's going to make us tremble. It will. To truly worship God, you have to understand God's holiness. It is the most important aspect of worship. And when we come to this knowledge of his great holiness, I'm telling you, you're going to tremble. I've mentioned this before. If Jesus walked through that door over there right now, I can guarantee you from what I read in the Bible, not one of us are going to go running over there to give him a hug. Because when we see him in his glory, in his holiness, we will then see what we are truly like in his eyes, and we're going to be flat on that ground. I'm telling you that will happen. I don't know about you, but that's what I'm going to be. And we see this all through Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament, when people come into contact with God and they see his glory, remember the transfiguration? The three close disciples of Jesus, they fell down in fear. We've lost this. Let me give you a quote from John MacArthur. He really summed this up well. Contemporary Christianity has lowered God to its level robbing him of majesty and holiness. This is idolatrous as worshiping a rock. What the contemporary Christian church has been guilty of lately in the last couple of decades is making God more and more human. We are humanizing God. We're forgetting and, and passing up about how holy he is. And we've got this 
aspect that we sing songs and write songs and stuff, and we go before thinking that, oh boy, I can't wait to see Jesus. I'm going to give him a hug and walk down the street and everything. It's going to be great. Really? You really think you're going to act like that when you come before the holy God in his splendor and in his glory and showing out his holiness? You really think you're going to be like that? I think that's where we literally do the actual type of worship that the word means. We're going to be on our ground with our face on the ground. We're going to be at the ground level and afraid even to look up because of how holy he is. And I think we've lost that. Look at how some great biblical characters, just about done here, but look at some characters and how they responded when they confronted God. These are great Bible people now. Pillars. Genesis 18, we have Abraham. He comes to a knowledge of who God is, what God is like. Abraham answered in 1827 of Genesis, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes. Abraham's falling down and, oh my gosh, I'm talking to God and... I'm ashes. I'm dust. He's got the right perspective of who he is. Job. In Job 42, after going through all this anguish and stuff, and Job has been preaching and things on things he really doesn't understand about God, all of a sudden God appears to him and he starts talking to him. Look at verse, uh, in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. I have heard you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent. Where? In dust and in ashes. Job's a pretty religious person, and that's how he responds. Or how about Ezra, the high priest Ezra? In Ezra chapter 9, verse 6, he says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blessed to lift my face to you. My God, for, for my iniquities, my sins have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt is mounted up to the heavens. He is, a, he is on the ground, and he's like, God, I am, I, we're sinners, and we can't even come close to you. How, I can't look at you. Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 16. I love this one. When he confronts God like this, look what he writes. I hear, and my body trembles. One translation says, my knees knock. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. How often when we are worshiping God do we have this aspect? You see what we've lost? And it's a shame. Isaiah gets one of the most beautiful descriptions. A vision that is just remarkable. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Oh, we sing songs and we talk about this often. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two eyes he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. At, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, Isaiah is a pretty religious person, walking close with God. He was a major prophet. In verse 5, look how this pillar of religion, this guy walking close with God, Look how he responds in verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Does this sound like Isaiah saying, Oh God, give me a hug? I don't think so. 
Isaiah got it right. He understood. Oh, but some people will say, well, you see, we're Christians. We're washing the blood of Christ. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid of God. Even though we're Christians, folks, we still get dirty. We still come around in sin. And I still think that when Jesus walks in and we see God in his glory and his majesty and his ultimate holiness, I think we will be just like Isaiah and we're going to say, oh my gosh, God, forgive me. And I think many of us will be in tears. What made Isaiah and all these others so afraid? Here it is, folks. They realized their unworthiness before the holy God. It is in that situation that we realize then the true depths of our sin. We realize our unworthiness when we come to the standard of holiness. We Christians, we must remember, are only alive because of the mercy God imparts to us. We all deserve the death penalty. Every instant you and I fail God, we deserve the death penalty right there and then. Just like Ananias, when he got caught in his sin, boom, God killed. God could do this to any one of us. But God in his mercy extends grace and he extends goodness that we don't deserve. Think about that when you come to worship him. We are so good. This is a quote by MacArthur again. I love this. We are so used to the mercy and the grace that we think God has no right to be angry with sin. We've become callous, in other words. Romans 3.18 sums up the world's attitude. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We have become so callous. In our contemporary Christian church, we have really messed this up. We have lost what true worship is. We may never, on this side of the Jordan, get to see a vision of what Isaiah did. But when we worship God, we must see him in his, in his holiness. In his presence, we will then see ourselves as we are. Our sinfulness will result in fear. No wonder David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 7, that a broken and contrite heart is necessary for true worship. I'm going to conclude by reading an excerpt from John MacArthur's book on worship. And this is what I'll conclude with. I think he hit the nail on the head. Quote, My heartfelt concern is that there is too much shallowness today with regard to God's holiness. Our relationship to God has become so casual. In the modern mind, God has become almost human, so affable and ordinary that we don't understand his holy indignation against sin. If we burst into his presence with lives unattended, by repentance, confession, and cleansing by the Spirit and the Word of God, we are vulnerable to His holy indignation. It is only by His grace that we breathe each breath, is it not? He has every reason to take our lives because the wages of sin is death. We have lost our sense of that fear. Too many people approach God with this casual familiarity that borders on blasphemy. Much that is done in the name of worship today clearly does not generally regard God as holy, and thus it falls woefully short. A lot of catchy songs are being sung, poignant feelings are being felt, congenial thoughts 
are being thought and pleasurable emotions are being cultivated. But too often, these things are merely self-indulgent exercises masquerading as worship without any serious acknowledgement of the holiness of God. That kind of worship bears no relationship to the worship we see in the Bible. It may be more psychological than theological, more fleshy than spiritual. The response of a true worshiper to a vision of God should resemble Isaiah's. We should be overwhelmed with our own sinfulness and consequently consumed with a sense of holy terror. I am certain that if the people who claim to have seen God saw him, they wouldn't be lining up to get on the latest Christian talk shows. They'd be lying prostrate on the ground, grieving over their sin. Unquote. I think MacArthur hit the nail on the head. Father, we thank you for this time we've had here tonight in exploring the attributes and how important this is for our worship. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us as we have so rottenly treated you and still call it worship. How we have passed ourselves off. How we will walk supposedly into your presence spiritually, carrying this this load of sin and stuff, and we don't even think about it. And we sing some nice songs thinking, wow, I had an emotional, uplifting time. Boy, I had a great worship. And Lord, we've never really worshiped. I thank you for Isaiah's account to show us how we really stand before you. Even, Lord, those who walk with God, even us Christians washed in the blood of Jesus, we still carry the stain of sin as we still live in this life. We still need cleansing. We still need to go to you and repent. And, Lord, how can we come into your presence carrying this garbage? We need to understand and help us, Holy Spirit, teach us the attributes of who you are and how holy you are, so that we may truly give you acceptable worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.